We are launching a series today, a six-week series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And um, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually going to be six weeks of a deep dive into David's tabernacle. And I've been saying that the last couple of weeks and everyone's like, eh? David's what? David's tabernacle? Oh, we're going to go back to Old Testament and talk about slaughtered bulls and this guy. No, uh, there is something so deep about the revelation of what Jesus came to restore and rebuild, what His second coming is going to fulfill. And so I want to encourage you, we're going deep over six weeks. Uh, it's going to be good today. We're going to just bring an introduction and an overview so that you have a little bit of context as to what we're going into. But I promise you, this is a revelation that will change the perspective of your life forever. It, this this uh, journey and this message has marked my life uh, in the last year. It has gripped me. Uh, it'll bring context for a lot of the language that we use here when we talk about His presence and His glory. It's like, man, you guys use all these words about presence and glory and swirly this and that and whatever. And it's like, what are you actually saying? What are you talking about? Well, we're going to go into that together because what, we, what we're going after, I want you to know this um, straight from the, from the word go. What we want to see is the government of God on the earth. The word church, we get the word from, from the original word ecclesia, or ecclesia, and uh, it actually is a governmental word. Uh, the ecclesia is actually, uh, it's a group of people that, that carry the government uh, of another place. And so when the ecclesia gets together, it's the government of the kingdom established on the earth. It, it's, not, it's actually not just about gathering, just so you know. The church, the ecclesia, is not just about getting together in a room. It's actually about establishing the government of God on the earth. I think it's a good thing for us to begin to explore and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us what His government is and what it looks like. Are you with me? So David's tabernacle, it's words that you'll become familiar with. Maybe right now it doesn't make sense, but stick with us. We're going through it. And the reality is uh, it's actually just the master plan of the Father. It's just the dream of God from start to finish. And so you might have heard us use words in the church like uh, where His glory dwells or that, that God would dwell in the midst of us, living stones being put together, a dwelling place for God, this kind of language, right? And I want to talk about why we talk like that. So today I've, I've titled this God's Plan to Dwell with Man. And uh, we're going to just do a quick overview uh, and, and make sure that the perspective that we have of the gospel, the perspective that we have of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is one of understanding it's God's deepest desire and dream that He will fulfill for Him to dwell with us. He's done it through the cross, through Holy Spirit, but it's not finished. How many of you know that the cross wasn't the end of the gospel? When we preach the gospel, sometimes we preach it to the cross, and then we stop there. And you got saved, and, and you, you got redeemed, and you came to new life, and you got filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen, brother, go for it now. You know, at least you're saved. No, actually, there's more to the story. And the reality is that King of glory who paid the price for you is actually coming again. And it should be the lens that we view life through. I've, I shared this in the beginning of the year. We, we did a couple of weeks on this saying that the, the second coming of Jesus is the lens that we should view life with. Why? Because everything that we do is unto that moment. And we don't talk about it in the church. We don't preach it much in the church because it's a little bit creepy. And I, I said this before. Sometimes people, it's like it's become scary because we don't know the date or the hour. We don't know. It could just happen. You know, could be today. Could be in five years. Could be in fifty years. Could be in a thousand years. And so the church just decided not to care, right? And the reality is that's not it. Actually, the scripture shows us that through through the times and the seasons and the generation that we're in, Jesus gave us the signs so that we'd begin to see what generation we're in. 
And the stuff that we're seeing today, whether we're the last or close, I believe we're in that time, right? And so it should be stirring something in the bride of what is my life going to look like when I'm living unto the return of Jesus? And when I think about this, it forced me to ask some questions. And that's what uh, took us to this series. I began to ask questions like this. Jesus, what kind of church are you coming back for? Jesus, what, what does the church that you're coming back for, what do they sound like? What do they say? What do they do? How do they think? What do they want? Where do they go? Right? Do you see how it changes the perspective? Straight away, you begin to ask questions like, hold on, if he's coming back, he's coming back for something. And so I began to do this deep dive into the Word and just say, Lord, show us and teach us. And so I want to take us all the way back to the garden. How many of you know, uh, when we talk about the garden, it's my dad's favorite topic. He'll preach out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for the rest of his life. But um, if we go back, he's writing a book. Please, every time you see him, just hassle him about this book because he's been writing it for about seven years and we need the finished work. So it's, yeah, there we go. And uh, so I'm going back to the garden. Here's the thing. What do you picture when you think of the Garden of Eden? It's interesting, right? Beauty, right? I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you think, like, that's a great answer. That's better than the answer I had, actually. The, the first picture that I had in my head was, like, some roses, some nice luscious grass, maybe some trees, maybe some farming stuff, like, you know, some potatoes and... And then, and then, like God and Adam in in the garden, right? That's kind of the original thought process. Or we picture them walking through this like jungle, you know, naked guys in the jungle, like walking with God, right? Because we've just we've seen cartoons and we've read these little kids books and stuff, and that's what they did, right? Like Adam with a little leaf covering things, and he's like walking in the garden. And, uh, and the reality is, I started to think about this, I began to study it, and, and I've been doing this deep dive study, but I want to start off and just share this. Garden, the word garden that's used there is not the way we understand garden. It's actually, it comes from the Middle Eastern uh, gardens and what they used to do, and actually in the kingdoms, they would have these gardens, and these gardens would have chambers and buildings and walls and waterfalls and, and luscious paths and beautiful greenery, and there was actually a lot of structure and design around these things right? And so the garden was normally at the center of the courts. So you would, you would have these uh, buildings and things around where, where governmental things would happen, and there would be this beautiful garden, right? And they would refer to that as the garden. And, uh, and so when we picture God, we have to understand that when we look at creation, He creates the world, and then He creates this region called Eden. And it's a region, right? And in the east of Eden, He plants a garden, God, right? He makes one of these garden things. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't just this place where things were growing and it was pretty and nice and luscious and it was a nice place for man to kind of start out. He chose a location in what he created for heaven to touch earth. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you really study this, and, and I won't go down there too far today because we're going to go there in the next couple of weeks, the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation was present in the garden. Zion, and we're going to talk about that next week. What is Zion? Zion was present in the garden where heaven and earth meet and touch, where there is no separation between heaven and earth. That's what was happening in the garden. So, I want you to understand this. Adam and Eve were living in the reality of heaven and earth touching. 
That's where they started. That's where man was born. Why? Because that's God's heart. It's hard to argue this because the reality is he started there and he's coming back to that at the end in a greater measure. So he, Zion is in this place. Heaven is touching earth. And it's interesting, he creates man. And I don't know about you, but how many of you have pictured Adam as a farmer? Because he was tending to the garden, right? So I think of Adam, I go, okay, tending to the garden. Sure, he obviously was like cultivating the ground and cultivating. So I began to study this. This is so interesting. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it, right? So if you look at these words, the word for put, when he put him in the garden, is nuach, which literally means set to rest. Interesting. So he set Adam to rest in the garden, Zion. And then it says this. The Hebrew word for tend is abat, and it's used for the word, or when it's used with the word put and the um, nuach, and they're put together, it always refers to the Israelites serving God and keeping his commandments, or to the priests who serve the Lord and guard the temple. It's the same words. So we read tend and keep in the garden, and we think fix the plants. But actually, tend and keep was to serve the Lord and guard his sanctuary. Man, Adam was created as a priest first and foremost, not as a farmer. He was created as a priest, right? Someone who, who God designed Adam and Eve to minister to God in an environment where heaven and earth are touching. Why am I saying this? It, it's like we need to go back to the beginning and shift our perspective so we can understand where we're going. Man was created in the glory of God, in perfection. It's why he was naked and didn't even know what naked was. Because he was created in the image of God and he was living in it. They were walking in a, a physical, here's what I want to say, they were walking in a physical place. Why do I say that? When you think about heaven, what do you think about? Because we've watched the cartoons, you know, it's like when you see the cartoons and, and then they talk about someone in heaven, there's this dude floating on a cloud. But maybe there's some golden gates in St. Peter there and he kind of gives them a high five when they come in. But it's kind of this abstract thing. And the problem is we, we talk so, uh, we, we, we call it spiritual, but we, we're talking like figuratively about heaven. Like heaven is this figurative idea and we don't really know what it's going to look like, but we know it's going to be awesome. And we've been told that and so we kind of, treat heaven like this concept over there. But the reality is this, that when you look at scriptures, heaven is a physical place. It actually has dimensions. The new Jerusalem is actually measured out. It's actually got order and structure, and it's got, it's got uh, design. Are you with me? It's a place. See, if we don't treat it like that and see heaven like that, then the reality is we struggle to understand heaven on earth because we think it's a figurative thing. Are you with me? If we don't see and view heaven as a real physical place with substance, it's tangible. If we don't think of it like that, then what does heaven on earth look like? Oh, it's this figurative idea of I think where everyone's happy. And so we begin to pursue the American dream instead of the dream of God. Because isn't aren't we all supposed to just be blessed and happy and, and just feel good? Isn't that what heaven is? Not, no tears in heaven. Isn't that what it's meant to be? No, actually, 
There is a government and a pattern of life and a structure in heaven. And when Jesus prayed on earth as it is in heaven, he was actually saying that pattern, that government, that structure is going to touch earth once again. And so we see from the beginning, Adam is a priest. Adam and Eve are priests unto the Lord that have been given an assignment from God not to make sure the garden looks nice, but to serve the Lord and to guard the sanctuary. The Garden of Eden was the first tabernacle. It was the first place where God chose, this is where I'm going to touch heaven and earth and dwell. Are you with me? There's so much in that. We'll, we'll unpack this more as we go throughout the week. So we see this. This is how God starts. And then we go through the journey and we see Moses. We get to the Israelites and Moses. And it's interesting that when the Lord gives the word to Moses to speak to Pharaoh, he says to Pharaoh, this is the word of the Lord, let my people go, uh, that they may go into the wilderness and what? Worship. Interesting. That they may be released from Egypt, go into the wilderness and worship. Right? And then they find themselves in this place, and, and Moses now, he goes up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai. They're in the wilderness. And I want you to picture this. It says that there were lightnings and thunderings and smoke came down on the mountain and fire and His glory, right, on Mount Sinai. And Moses walks up into that. Are you with me? So this is, a, this is, this is we're not, when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about what we, our minds cannot comprehend. It is, it is glory and power and, and, and authority like we don't even know, right? So this comes onto Mount Sinai and they go up in Exodus 19, 6-8. The Lord actually speaks to Moses. I'm going to read it to you quickly. He says, he's speaking to Moses. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Pause there for a second. God's now on Mount Sinai in His glory with Moses... Now, we know Moses spoke to God as face-to-face, as, -face, as a friend, right? He's in, in the glory with Moses, and, and, and God is saying to Moses, He's saying, I want you to tell Israel the same thing I gave Adam and Eve. I've actually called you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and I want all of you to minister to me. My glory, in other words, here's the thing. Man sinned, we know that they came out of the garden, they were banished from the garden. I forgot to say that. Banished from the garden. They, they were banished from the tabernacle. They weren't allowed to come into the garden. They weren't banished from Eden. They were banished from the garden. They were banished from His manifest glory where Zion, where heaven and earth touch. That's where they were banished from. Now God's on this journey with man, and what you're going to see over these weeks is a continual process again and again of God reaching out to man, introducing His dream again and again, saying, I want to dwell with you. And so what He does is, here's the glory of God. The same way it came down in the garden, now it's on Mount Sinai. And Moses comes in and he didn't die. And he's in his glory now. He's, he's with the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him and says, I want you to tell Israel that I've called them to be a, a kingdom of priests. That sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I've heard that in Revelation. We're going to get there. In Exodus, he's saying what he says in Revelation. I'm actually calling you as a holy nation to come and be a kingdom of priests. I want all of you to come and minister to me. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Exodus 20, 18 to 21, listen to this. 
Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning, flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Israel sees the glory of God on the mountain. And they begin to get afraid, and they distance themselves from the glory of God. Moses, is, they, they watched him walk in, and he came out. But they choose, well, that's, that's a little bit intense, so they distance themselves. You see, here's the thing that Israel knew. You touch that glory, you'll never be the same again. You touch that glory, you don't know what happens to your life. And so it's like, oh, hold on. That, that could change everything, and we don't know what that means. Right? So listen to what they say. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. I don't know if you're seeing something here. God never put into place that you come into His glory and die. God's desire was for man to come into His glory. Man looked upon His glory and said, that will kill us. And the reality is, yes, it will. But it will form Christ in you. Everything that you are dies in the glory of God and Christ is formed in you, right? Listen to this. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. It's interesting when you hear this, he's like, Moses saying, no, why are you panicking? His glory's come because when you come into that glory, you're free from sin. Do you see this? He's not saying he's come to scare you with the lightning to make sure you don't sin and you better try real hard. He's not saying that. He's saying his glory's come to show you what you were made for. He's, he's saying God's testing you by bringing the fear of the Lord before you. When you walk in the fear of the Lord, you won't sin. Why? Because you know what you were born for. You know what you're alive for. You're designed for the tabernacle. I'm designed to live in His glory. Moses was saying, no, you don't understand. God's come to test you. Don't, don't reject Him. Accept Him. He's saying that this is the invitation of the Lord. Man, this changes things. Do you see the perspective shift? God wanted Israel in His glory. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So the people separate themselves from God, and Moses comes in. Upon hearing the voice of the Lord audibly, they immediately turned to Moses and asked that he be God's minister, speaking to them on behalf of God. How much of the church is still doing this today? How much of the church is still coming to gatherings, wanting to stand far off from God, but hear the messenger who has some sort of advice or input for their life? And God's going, I didn't pay a price just for messengers. Messengers are anointing, anointed. They bring, they bring the message of God. They bring the Word of God. But that's not God's dream. God's dream is that all of us would come into the glory of God. I don't know if you understand what that means, but it means that you get to touch the very person of who He is. The person of God, His personality, His nature, the, the expression of who He is. You get to live there and be filled in that. So we see this is God's heart already. We're in Exodus and He's crying out to His people. He's going, I want to be with you. Are you with me? How are you getting this? Israel rejected God's invitation to be a kingdom of priests and asked that Moses be the go in between. Are you seeing this? Why, why am I starting here? I'm starting here first and foremost to show you the timeline of how God moves, but I'm also showing you that this is what we do. We're still doing this, we're still rejecting the invitation to come and dwell with Him forever in His glory, in His presence. And we're going to get to this. 
Listen to this thought. It's unclear what the worship environment of Israel would have been like had Israel accepted God's invitation. In other words, if they'd said yes, we don't actually know what that would have looked like. Because here's the thing. They rejected God and God puts into place plan B. Now, God wasn't shocked. He had a plan all along. He's got a master plan. He knew, but he had plan B. Let's call it plan B. And so what he does is he says to Moses, okay, what we're going to do, Moses has an encounter with the Lord and he begins to show him the pattern of what happens in heaven. Here's what I want you to understand. What Moses brought onto the earth was a type and a pattern of what he saw in heaven. Acts chapter 7 talks about that. It says that Moses, he, he, he uh, built the, table of the uh, tabernacle of the testimony according to the pattern which he had seen. So they didn't, it wasn't just a cool idea, put it in a tent and measure it like this and this is how it's going to work and everyone camps around. No, he saw something. He saw it and, he, and the, the, the question or the response in his heart was, okay, how do we best replicate this on the earth? And now this wasn't going to be God's fulfilled design. This was going to be plan B because they rejected his invitation. And so he anoints the Levites, one of the tribes, that will begin to minister to the Lord, that will now be the priests that God created Adam and all mankind to be. Are you with me? It's why, see, if you understand this, it makes sense that when you come into the new covenant with Jesus, we're all priests. And we'll get to that. But do you understand that God's heart was not just for one tribe to be priests? It was, it was a plan that was put into place to steward something that would begin to train and teach people about the glory of the Lord and what was needed, that there was, the, there was a great need for the Messiah because of our sin. The law was introduced. The Levites began to minister. So we see this. I love this. Ultimately, it was God's mercy to set apart the tribe of Levi so that the nation of Israel wouldn't be destroyed by God's glory dwelling in their midst. Oh, there's so much in this. I'd encourage you to read Numbers 1, 52 and 53. It talks about uh, the children of Israel. It talks about how they pitch their, their tents, everyone by his own camp. And they camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. So now the people of God, the best that they're getting in the situation because of their posture towards His glory, is they'll, they'll camp around His presence, but they don't get to go in. They're led by His presence, but they don't get to go in. And so we see this. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, they no longer had access to the garden. And from that point, God began the plan to see humanity reestablished as a kingdom of priests. This is what I need you to see. God has a plan, and Jesus was the beginning of the fulfillment of that plan for all of eternity. So there are four Old Testament sanctuaries. We're going to talk about that now. Each of them built drawing upon the pattern of its predecessor. The original tabernacle of Moses was given by God. God literally showed Moses the pattern for his tabernacle when Moses was on Mount Sinai. And we see four, and you can, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. We see four tabernacles, four examples of a tabernacle in the Old Testament. The first one is Moses' tabernacle. Well, essentially it's Eden, but we'll just use Moses as the first one. Moses' tabernacle, David's tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and Zerubbabel's temple. And we see the, the expression that happens in these tabernacles. Now, all of this, I need you to understand, all of this is geared around an understanding of heaven touching earth. These are locations where God's presence is on the earth. His glory is on the earth. That's why they used to tie ropes and bells around the priest's uh, ankles because they'd go in the glory and not sure if you're going to come out alive. And so if their bells stop ringing, they pull you out. 
That's the glory I'm talking about. And you go, no, buddy, but in the new covenant, you know, that's not the same. Well, go read Acts chapter 5 and then come speak to me. Because when they came into a place of tabernacle where his glory was touching earth, Ananias and Sapphira lied and died. <laughs> that's not law. That's not legalism. That's government. So a couple of key things you need to understand about sanctuaries, and we're going to talk about David's tabernacle now. Firstly, God designed them as a place to meet with His people. That's God's design for a tabernacle. In other words, this right here, where we are, it's New Testament gatherings where we tabernacle around His presence, and we're getting there. But I need you to understand that the point is that God wants to meet with you. God wants to meet with His people. Each of these sanctuaries mirrors the throne room in heaven. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Think about that. Each of these sanctuaries mirrors the throne room in heaven. This wasn't man's idea. I hope that's sinking in. It wasn't man's idea. They saw something and they went to replicate it. You're starting to understand what should make you start thinking about when Jesus prayed this prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Because the reality is mankind has been on a journey of seeing something in part that they are trying to replicate on the earth. Why? Because they're beginning to feel the groan inside of them that God has a master plan. He wants to be with man. Each of these sanctuaries prophetically points to Jesus. I, won't, I can't go into that now, but we will over the next couple of weeks. Each of these uh, sanctuaries begin to show us that they're pointing towards our need for a Savior. We need someone to save us so we can come in. Each of these sanctuaries prophetically points to the new birth. If you look at the study of the tabernacle, you'll understand how you are made. Don't, don't worry about catching all this now. We're, we're going to unpack this. Each of these sanctuaries points to the fullness of intimacy that God intends to share with His people eternally. Okay, let's just shift. Now, today's just an overview, so please don't freak out. I'm going to go back, and we're going to go through this thing together. But I just want to give you a little bit of a taste of like, oh my word, this is, you know, wow. It should be doing that. It's okay if you're going like, just, that's how I, I feel. So now we, we understand, see, in Jesus' day, there was a temple, but it was Herod's temple. And listen to what happened with Herod's temple. You know, with Zerubbabel's temple, they lost the ark. They didn't have it. And when they rebuilt the temple, it was smaller than the previous one. In fact, they were depressed about it. Israel were like, look at this thing. Do you remember the former glory that we had? And look at what we built, and this is not even close. And yet the Lord prophesies to them in that moment and says that actually the, latter, the, the temple of the end times, the last temple, is going to be greater than the former. In other words, where I'm taking you guys is going to be far greater than what you imagined or pictured the temple being, what you remember it being. Are you with me? So we see this uh, in Jesus' day, Herod's temple. What, what crept into Herod's temple, and it was named after Herod, which I think is quite weird, but what crept in was actually the ways of man, the culture of man being relevant. So think about this. Think about this for a second. Mark 11, Jesus, he, he talks about how his house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. We also know that he cleanses the temple. He makes whips, and he whips the tables. He, he drives out all of the commercialism, the selfish ambition, and the, 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 the ways of, and the culture of mankind that crept into the church, the, the attempt to make the temple relevant. You catch that? Man's attempt to make the temple 
or the tabernacle relevant to society. You know, let's start to sell stuff in here. Let's trade in here. Let's exchange money in here. And Jesus comes and he whips out the furniture of man. (laughs) And he says, this is actually meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. So with the understanding of each of these sanctuaries of the Old Testament, and we'll come back to that in future weeks, when we understand that it points to the incarnation of Jesus, that we start to see our need for a Messiah, a need for a Savior, it should, ask, it should force us to ask some questions. But it also should provoke things when we read scriptures like John 1.14. Listen to this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you look at that word dwelt, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know what that word means in the Greek? It's skenuo, and it means this. To tent or encamp, that is to occupy or to reside as God did in the tabernacle. How did that one hit you? And the word became flesh... And dwelt among us. The word dwelt is tabernacle. Jesus became the tabernacle. And then he says something so profound. In fact, let me, before I go there, the second definition is this. To fix one's tabernacle. Have one's tabernacle. Or to abide in a tabernacle. So Jesus, he talks about how his flesh was the veil. His flesh was the veil, right? And the veil was removed. He tore the veil. So Jesus became the personified tabernacle of God and made a way once again for us to come back to where we started, but in a greater measure, that now every single one of us would recognize that we are a kingdom of priests called to come in boldly into the glory of God, to to partner with God to establish His government on the earth, And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Are you catching this? I know it's a lot, so please don't worry. We're going to move through this. Jesus himself, I love Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, and he said he'd be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was, was the fulfillment of the tabernacle prophecy. So Jesus comes, he makes a way for you to be right with God, that you can come into his glory. But it doesn't stop that he puts his spirit. It's the spirit of his glory. Everything you see in the Old Testament, when you see the glory of God come, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the aspect of the Trinity that reveals and manifests his glory. He's the one out of the three who manifests the Father and Jesus. So when you see the lightnings and the thunder and the storms and the fire and the pillar of fire and the clouds and you see all these, it's the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus has made a way to put that glory in you. (laughs) It freaks me out. That's why I'm looking at you like, oh my goodness. I feel the fear of God when I say that. All of that is in you. Now, here's the thing about David. Why do we call it David's tabernacle? And then I'll, I'll jump back to the New Testament. David's tabernacle. Under the leadership of Saul, in fact, it was for about 100 years, plus minus, they left the ark. Ark of the covenant, 
It's where what was in the tent, the tabernacle, where his glory would, would dwell and, and, and rest. They left it in a field. Blows your mind, right? After all that journey, generations upon generations, they come to a place where they've completely forsaken God. And under Saul's leadership, it's left in a field, and you start to see a kingdom based on man's desires, man's hopes, man's dreams, man's empire, right? Suddenly, David gets anointed to be king, and he's just this guy who has a heart for God. In the, in the fields with his sheep, loving Jesus, just singing songs to the Lord. And God anoints him to be king. And we see that when he becomes king, and one of the sessions we do will be on David. But when he becomes king, he does something so interesting. Israel is, is at war. There's people that want to take over Israel. There's tensions. The, the kingdom hasn't been run properly. There's a lot of things that need to happen. A new king has come into place, and he's got to actually fix a broken system. Let me put it this way. A corrupt and stupid government was running Israel, and David gets anointed, God's chosen king for the hour, and he comes in, and now there's a broken kingdom, and he needs to establish government again. What does he do? The first thing David does as king, this blows my mind. Just think, you're king of the nation. You've just come in, you're thinking, okay, let's get the military together. Let's put some things in order. Let's, let's lay down some new laws that are going to bring some order and establish things into the kingdom. No, actually, the first thing we're going to do, guys, is we're going to go find the ark. Let's go find the ark, and we're going to bring it. And guess what happens? They go, and they, they find the ark, and they bring it. And uh, Uzzah, the thing kind of falls over as they're carrying it because they're carrying it wrong. They're carrying it on a cart man's attempt to carry God's presence in their own strength. And it begins to shake, and it begins to look like it's going to fall, and Uzzah puts his hand out to stop it and to balance it, and he, he dies. And the fear of God hits David, and they stop for three months. Stop. Just leave it in Obed-Edom's house. Stop. Can you imagine? It's like, you're the king. You just said we're going to go fetch the ark. It's going to change everything. We're going to go get his presence back at the center of our nation. He goes to do that, and while bringing it here, somebody dies, his mate. And suddenly the fear of God hits him, and he's like, Lord, I don't understand. I'm trying to bring your presence here. And in those three months, what you see is David actually goes on a journey where he asks the right questions. Lord, how do we bring the ark back to the center of Israel? And suddenly he remembers, and he goes, it's meant to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, the priests. It's a prophetic picture that our systems and our programs are not going to carry God's presence. It's the heart of man, priests, a kingdom of priests. God wants to cultivate a church that would know how to carry His presence. Are you with me? Here's the thing about David. He, he becomes king, and guess what he does? The first statement he does, the first thing, as bringing the ark, is he says this. He says, I'm not your king. That's what he's saying. He's going, I've become king, I'm going to bring in a new government, and the way I'm going to do that is show you that I'm not your king. I'm going to bring the ark, I'm going to bring the presence. And guess what he does? This blows my mind. He brings it and he puts it in a tent on Mount Zion. David is the only person in history to put the tabernacle on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion's actually a real place. I don't know if you know that. We talk about Zion prophetically, but Zion's actually a real place. And right now, here's an interesting thing we'll unpack in a couple weeks. In the prophetic, we see uh, that you know, the church has, has in many ways moved away from the presence of the Lord. 
And to this day, the temple's built on Moriah, not on Zion. The hill Moriah. But David put the tabernacle in a tent on Mount Zion with zero veil and welcomed all of Israel to come and behold the glory of God and worship Him. I don't know about you, that, that, that blows my mind. I go, hold on, how? Because Uzzah died when he touched it. Now David is saying, we're going to put it in a tent on Mount Zion and say, all of Israel, come and behold. Come and worship Him. Why? David's, he's making the statement, this is how we establish government in a nation. When we put the presence of the Lord at the center and we enthrone and exalt Him. Are you with me? And from that moment, Israel began to transform into this powerful, dynamic nation that began to take ground. Because they honored His presence. Are you with me? David does something else that's very interesting. It's the only tabernacle in the Old Testament that was led by music. So he decides, you know what we're going to do? And I'm going to share this in a couple of weeks. But he, it says in Psalm 63 that he gazed upon the Lord in his sanctuary. In his sanctuary. I want you to understand this. That's not in the tent. He was in an encounter where he was in the sanctuary of God and beginning to see the glory of God. He gazed upon the Lord in his, his the Lord's sanctuary. What did he see? Well, when you study this, he saw Revelations 4. How do I know that? Because what he saw was four living creatures crying out holy day and night. He saw 24 elders around the throne who were throwing their crowns down and worshiping the Lord. So what does he do? And we'll, we'll get there. Don't worry about it now. We'll get to the scriptures in a couple of weeks. But he appoints four worship leaders, and then he divides all the musicians into 24 groups. And then he employs 4,000 musicians in split into 24 groups and make sure that worship and, and exaltation of him never stops 24-7, 365, for 33 years. David took the tax money and paid 4,000 musicians to worship the Lord. And that's what David called government. Why? Because David's tabernacle was the first and only tabernacle on the earth that was literally on Mount Zion, and it became the place where the glory of God touched the earth. God is so moved by David's understanding of the Father's heart that he calls David a man after his own heart and then names the master plan of God after him. In fact, he even says that his son, who's gonna, the Messiah who's coming, is the root of David. Son of David. David's lineage. Are you with me? I know this is a lot, but I promise you, week after week, this is going to begin to unfold. So when you come back to the new covenant, you begin to understand that Jesus became the fulfillment of God's dream on the earth. But he didn't stop there. He tore the veil. He made a way for every single one of us to come into his glory. But more than that, he put the spirit of, of himself, the spirit of God inside of us, and then you get scriptures like this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? There's a picture of government. Just as the glory of God dwelt in the Old Testament sanctuaries, the glory of God is now dwelling on the inside of the people of God through the Holy Spirit. Paul elaborated on this theme in 2 Corinthians 3, 
7-4. But let me read 2 Corinthians 4-6 for the sake of time. It's one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 4-6-7. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. In other words, he's saying it's the same God who did everything in the beginning. God who, who caused light to shine out of darkness. God who created everything. God who planted the garden in Eden. That God. Who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, the glory of God, in earthen vessels that the excellence of His power or of the power may be of God and not of us. Are you starting to see this? You were designed as a tabernacle. You were designed, Jesus became the firstborn of what the eternal tabernacle looks like, God with man. And then, just to drop a taster and we'll go this way in the future, suddenly Jesus makes you living stones by putting His Spirit inside of you, but He doesn't leave you scattered. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole body, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Are you beginning to, to see this? All I want today is that you come away with the thread. Well, you, I just, my prayer today is you start to think about this and go, hold on, from the beginning all the way through until the second coming of Jesus, God has a plan, and His plan is to dwell with man. And so He built these, the man built these sanctuaries to, to, to steward that place where God would touch earth, but the reality is Jesus became the living tabernacle. He removed every obstacle so that we could be the very thing God desired us to be, a kingdom of priests, that we would come into His glory. But more than that, He put His Spirit, He put His glory inside of us, that we now carry Him as walking, living tabernacles. But not only that, as individuals, now He wants us to come together as living stones. We'll talk about that in, in Peter. But living stones come together, and, and for what purpose? To create a corporate dwelling place for His glory. And what happens in that, exactly what happened with David, we establish the government of God on the earth once again. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Antioch is an example of what happens when we come into that government. They, they came into the priestly rhythm of life, light Acts 13, 2. They were serving the Lord, fasting, ministering to the Lord. In that priestly rhythm of life, they, they began to come into the environment of Zion, heaven and earth touching. And from that place, the assignments of heaven were released on the earth that could commission the apostolic and the prophetic and, and all the gifts to begin to advance the kingdom of heaven. That's what apostles do. How can, how can we be an apostolic people if we don't come from a place of His government? How can we go and establish the government of God anywhere else on the earth if we don't even know how to host it? Before any other identity, our first identity and calling in Christ is to be a kingdom of priests unto God before anything else. That was the first thing that God created us for, to be His priest, to be ministers to Him. And then He adopted us through Jesus and made us sons and daughters. Now we're sons and daughters who minister as priests. That's the most intimate place you can be with God. Revelations 1.6, He's made us a kingdom of priests. 
for God his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Revelations 21, 1-4, I'll end with this. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is what's coming. This is the fullness of what we're talking about. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. God's master plan for the church on the earth is to be the tabernacle of heaven. Because there's prophecies which we'll get to. Amos 9.11, Malachi 1.11 talks about the rebuilding and the restoration of David's tabernacle in the end times. Malachi 1.11 says, in every place incense will rise. In every place, meaning it's not just going to be in certain buildings. It's going to be in every place. That's us. The prophets began to see Revelations 21.1 and 4, that actually there would be this new city. It's a bride prepared and adorned for her husband, and it's going to be called that place where God dwells with man. No longer buildings, hearts. Not just scattered hearts, hearts that have come together to host His presence. Does that make sense? So my heart today is just to provoke you, because I, I have over 90 pages of notes um, uh, to get through. But the reality is, today, all I want to provoke in your heart and in your spirit is, oh my goodness, what a time to be alive, because God has a dream and a master plan that from the garden until Revelations 22, He's been preparing us, teaching us, training us in His glory because what's coming is the fulfillment of His dream. God with man for all of eternity. We're going to dwell with Him. Heaven is real. He wants heaven to touch earth. God doesn't differentiate. I just want to encourage you with this. God actually doesn't differentiate between heaven and earth. There's 161 scriptures about Zion, and the vast majority of them, you cannot tell whether he's talking about heaven or earth. That's God's desire. It's like when you read them, Lord, are you talking about heaven or earth? Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? So when this stirs in your heart, you go, Lord, I want to be prepared to host your glory. I want to be, I want to be a living stone placed together with other living stones to be a dwelling place for your glory. This changes the church dramatically because this shifts us from being Sunday-centered to being presence-centered. This shifts us from just one gathering a week to a lifestyle of ministering to the Lord.